2: Hello and welcome to another episode of I Way with Jameena Jamel. I hope you're well. I'm very excited for today's episode because it's with someone I really adore. Um Hopefully you enjoyed my episode with Mae Martin just a couple of weeks ago. They are such an extraordinary person. I got so many lovely messages from all of you, but I love having someone on who I've known for 10 years or so, especially someone who I met when I was really young. And my guest this week is one of those people. I met her at the very beginning of my career. She was also starting hers out and we've just kind of been adjacent to one another throughout and trying to find time to become friends, but not being able to manage to find that time kind of until right now. During this episode that you're about to hear, I think after that, it was just sort of, it's a done deal. That's it. She's stuck with me now. We're going to be friends. We love each other, clearly. There's just so much chemistry there. Her name is Marina Diamandis. You might know her better as Marina and the Diamond. She's one of the most interesting and exciting pop artists of our generation. Always done her own thing, always been different, always stood out, never played by any of the rules. Just such an intelligent, interesting, inspiring, cool, quirky and bold young artist and she's so honest and frank and loves to loves to do the unexpected and say the unexpected honest true thing and she did exactly that on this podcast and came with no guard up to talk to me about such personal things like eating disorders body image the the real feelings she had around her time in this industry. She said things that I've just never heard anyone say before. uh Really, really honest, vulnerable things that very few people, that many people feel, but very few people would ever admit to. And she just did so casually on this podcast. I love her. We talk about... Her breaks between albums and when she actually kind of stepped away from the industry, thinking that it would potentially be forever and what it's been like to come back. And we massively connect over our uncertainty on whether we want kids, because currently we both really fucking don't. And we're both 35 and we're just not up for it. And we want to talk about how normal that is and how okay that is. And it's something that I feel very, very passionately about. I try and bring it up when literally on any episode I can. And I can't believe I found someone who actually wants to come and chat to me about it at length, who feels the same way, who's the same age, in the same position, from the same place. And oh, she's just a fucking dream. So please enjoy this episode about music and artistry and mental health with the funny and smart and unbelievably cool and brilliant and beautiful how dare she My beloved Marina Diamandis, welcome to IWay. How are
3: you? <laughs> Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm very good, thank you.
2: How are you doing? I'm thrilled that you're here. I also haven't seen your face face to face in like six years, I think. Yeah. It's been yeah, bloody it's ages. It's cause you moved to America. It is because I moved to America, but also like you know, you and I were talking about this the other day on the phone. That mm-hmm. there's no good reason why we're not best friends. I mean, like <laughs> like Trudy, really just the best of friends. I don't understand it. And this, I remember the first time I met you; it was 2010, mm-hmm. and we were doing a photo shoot together. This is 11 years ago, yeah. and we were supposed to be pretending we were on the front row of a, <laughs> of a runway do you remember this at like London fashion week and, How it can was, I forget? and we were yeah and we were being called like you know the next girls to watch both in entertainment and in fashion uh it's very deep and meaningful it's a deep and meaningful piece uh but that's the first time we met and I remember immediately falling in love with you on that day and Aww. then every time we would see each other I would interview you on Radio 1 or on T4 mm. and uh, and we always would say we would hang out, we would always mean to and then we just didn't and part of that I think is because we were busy but also part of it is is this thing where I think people don't reach out to musicians because they presume that they're always on tour. To me, you seemed so not even of London, like that you were so <laughs> successful so quickly that you felt just always omni-global. Yeah. And so that's why I never used to phone you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, okay. Um, it's because of that, <laughs> I just presumed I was like, oh, she just must be the busiest, <laughs> most famous person in the world. And she's travelling constantly. She's just somewhere exotic on the other side of the world. Oh. Uh, but I just want to formally apologise for not for not being better at trying to be friends because I uh, adored you immediately.
3: Do you not apologise because... Um... I think with friendships, especially people who you do have an affinity for, which I think we did, Yeah. like, like listeners at home should know that we, we swap numbers, I think three times over the yeah. 10
2: years.
3: <laughs> we, at one point we literally lived five minutes away from each other. Cause I think you lived in Muswell Hill, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think sometimes people who you do have a connection with, it just, it's not the right time for whatever reason. And at some point, you know, you meet again and we have crossed paths again.
2: You've had such a, a long and extraordinary and exemplary career. Like I remember when you first came onto the scene, there was no one else like you. What was it like becoming so quickly successful? What was that like for you? Cause I remember at the time, and you know, I wasn't becoming big globally, but in London, I became fairly well known really quickly yeah. around the same time as you. I mean, we literally started that first shoot was off, was, was something that we did together. <laughs> and I found it very overwhelming for my mental health and mm. I, uh, I wonder what that was like for you. Because um, you were bloody everywhere.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I processed it as something very exciting. I think my mental health really began to suffer like end of first album. What was that? I think I just, I, you know, honestly, I think I just had a, a really big ego. I really did. I think <laughs> I was seeking a lot of... Um, I'm seeking a lot of
2: external validation, external
3: validation and some kind of healing through that. And I wasn't conscious of that at the time. So in a way, it was a recipe for disaster in terms of contentment and fulfillment because nothing was ever going to be good enough. You know, I think it's taken me, it took me like five or six years after that first record to really get to grips with that and to change the way that I felt about myself
2: oh god I'm so obsessed with you I love that you said that there's like so few people would ever come on and actually admit to that I think you know we had a conversation with Matt Haig who talked about that about the mm. constant goalpost shifting of you know when you first write an album you're like oh I hope someone ever wants to hear this I hope a couple of people hear it I hope I get one record label bid and then you get 16 and so suddenly that sets a new tone I hope I you know I yeah. hope that I managed to make it into the top 40 suddenly I want to be in the top 10 suddenly I want to be number one yes. and I want to be on the cover of like i want to be in this magazine i want to be on the cover of this magazine it's just this this uh toxic this toxic cycle that is is uh that really really is so prevalent in our industry where and it's massively egged on by publicists agents managers uh this this fear mongering of like you know well if you get to that level of success, don't enjoy it because now you have to keep up that level of success. Now you have to do better next time mm. than you have this time. When you see like how long artists like Rihanna, for example, take between records, you you can't help but wonder like, God, is that because of how much pressure the world is putting on her to match or top whatever she's done before? Yeah, I don't have no idea. I mean, I don't know Rihanna. I'm just saying that you you can. I can only imagine the pressure.
3: Now, I wonder about that as well with, um, you know, artists like Taylor Swift, who are so commercially, commercially successful and so gifted as songwriters, but there must just be this human thing where it's like, well, if I got number one last time, then surely you have to get that again. Otherwise, anything less is a failure. And I think, I hope that we're all at a point where we can begin to examine what um, our cultural values of success are versus like what our personal ones are, because I think it brings a lot of relief and just well-being <laughs> yeah. when, when you suddenly start to realise that success might mean something very different to you than it does to maybe your fans or media or you know whoever whoever's perception
2: of you. Hundred percent, and so. So rather than, I'm just trying to clarify, so rather Mm -hmm. than feeling like, oh God, people are invading my space or my words are being taken Mm -hmm. too literally or seriously by too many people, some of the thing that you were suffering from was like not enough people are Seeing yeah. or hearing me. <laughs> yeah. I th- I, but, I, but also like there are so many of my friends who feel that way. So many people who are so close to me who feel that way and never admit it. And I love the fact that you do because I think that's so natural for this industry. I'm sure I went through the same thing at the beginning of my career. It's just that I had such a violent <laughs>
1: response
2: <laughs> to then actually becoming as successful as I, you know, was told I should be, that I then had a nervous breakdown and and um almost Mm. Uh, died uh, but um enough about me. Uh that that that's like how badly that went for me. And so then I kind of moved very much so the other way, which is why I now live such a private um mm. and subtle existence. It's very I really don't put myself out there anymore. The trouble
3: is because I like you so much, I just want to ask you questions, but, but
2: No, I like you too. I like but you. This too, but this isn't
3: the podcast for that yet. No, no,
2: exactly. And also I just hate talking about myself, Marina. That's why I have this podcast. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway uh no i think that's fascinating and so how have you what has been the journey to coming to reevaluate that that value system and coming mm. to find peace with where you're at. I mean, also just, and I'm not mocking you when I say this, but she's also got 11 million fucking monthly listeners on Spotify. <laughs> so I'm like, try not to cry for Marina, Argentina, like I'm being facetious that I'm yeah, just, I'm just
1: I get it. No, yeah. de-
3: this is definitely not a, um, I don't have any feeling of like um, victimhood or, or sob story about this. I feel really good about it because I can share something, a journey that has been really valuable to me. Um, mm. So after the first album, I was asked to write with a lot of like big um, songwriters in LA, like Dr. Luke, Stargate. And for six months I'd said, oh no, I don't want to do that. It doesn't feel right. And then in the end I caved and... I did actually go the like commercial route for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I made up a character because I wanted it to be an experiment for me. I had to process it like that in order to get through it because I was doing something that felt so far from my own musical world. Right. And, and actually, to be honest, I just wanted to test like, okay, if I want to be on American radio and I work with these people, is it going to work? And right. It bloody did.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: It's, you know, it's a system. And I'm not really cri- criticizing that, but it is a system. The way that you get on pop radio is much more kind of like brutal than people might think. You know, it's what a do lot you mean? more like, well, I mean, there are, A, you have to work with like specific people. There are usually only eight songs on rotation. Eight songs.
2: That's ridiculous.
3: <laughs> I know. And if you don't fit purely into pop, you just won't get on pop. And if you don't fit purely into alternative, then you won't get on alternative. So you kind of just, you know, in the middle and not played. Mm-hmm. So you do have to really like play this game. And for some artists, they're so good at it and it works and it suits them. But for me, like, it was really, really bad for me. Like, I've never felt so ill in a campaign as I did with Electra Heart. I was wearing a wig every day. Um, You know, I still sold like a million singles and I still felt like, (laughs) like, oh, could have done better. (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, why, you know, why didn't it chart though? You know, it's just like, I was on radio. Why is, if it's selling that much, why isn't it charting?
2: Especially, I think, if you feel like you've had to compromise any of your musical... I don't know, like autonomy or integrity to be able to even take harder. this route, I think then you're yeah. like, well, I've, I've done this thing that I didn't necessarily enjoy that much. And I, you know, I don't want to generalize and say that you didn't have any great sessions with other people because I know you did, but I've also yeah heard you I speak did. before about the fact that that was a compromising, difficult time it- for you because you're having to give up your, some of your musical freedom, I guess, to make space for someone else's. And yeah. that can be brilliant. But I think with some of the people you worked with and it, you know, it was mostly men that you were sent to work with.
3: Yeah, mostly men. And, and I think nobody really, who I was working with understood the concept at the time. It was only actually when I started creating it on Tumblr that fans really connected with it. Um, and I mean, long story short, it I'm glad all of that happened because A, it introduced me to a whole new fan base and B, the following record that I did, I really, um, I kind of set down all of those types of aspirations. And I just made a deal with myself that if I was going to be an artist, I was going to do it on my own, on my own terms, regardless of what kind of success I would get from that. And it worked out really well.
2: Um, It did, but it was an unusual route again because it was that it was that record, right? That's the (laughs) third record. So the third record is the one where you were not actually given a lot of support by your label. Yeah, not huge,
3: not huge. No, there
2: wasn't Um, a lot of like there wasn't like a giant PR rollout for that. Like it was no because you hadn't taken yeah, and and you had to kind of really work a an unusual promo campaign that you'd kind of devised yourself because other people were sort of like, well, you don't want to work with all the big famous men that we can put you with. So you're on your own.
3: Yeah. And also I just think with, um, radio stations like Radio One in the UK, again, it's kind of, it's quite narrow sometimes for labels and they struggle to find, they've always just struggled to find a home for me. Um, and so I devised a strategy which would enable my fans to support me if they wanted to and if they like the music. Um, it was called Fruit of the Month and you basically like buy a song each month and you pre-order the album. Mm-hmm. And as, like, as a result, with no radio play, I got like a top 10 record in the US, which I'd never had. So from that, I got so much confidence. I was like, you don't have to compromise yourself. There is a way, but you have to have the guts to do that.
2: Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp,
0: dot P.com slash iWay. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Multa and Ecuador.
1: Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because...
2: Is like food and and eating disorder stuff something that you struggled with during your career?
3: Yeah, it is. And I've never actually talked about it, mainly because I recovered and it's genuinely not a part of my brain anymore, which is a miracle, (laughs) as you Mm -hmm. know. Yes. It's a genuine miracle because this is, it's so hard
2: to recover from. Um, But. Do you mind talking about it now?
3: No, I don't because I think this is the right space for it. Um, and I'm talking to the right person for it <laughs> um but yeah, I think my worst you know my worst years were from like sixteen to twenty five I'd say, at that time when I'd started out, I was you know it, was, it kind of crept into my work. It's like my songwriting is a vehicle to to like <laughs> tell myself the truth. <laughs>
2: That's amazing so
3: My subconscious brain is like filtering up into my conscious brain, and then the songwriting actually acts as a way to make me change, so that's how it started, and I think, yeah, probably I don't know four or five years after I'd started doing that i'd I managed to like recover from it and not really have like not have like really invasive issues anymore.
2: It's really unfortunate that you entered the pop industry at the time that you did uh, with an eating disorder already, because all it does is enable it. And everyone, I know, and people used to talk about your body in appropriate and not appropriate, but like inappropriate ways sometimes, but also sometimes in complimentary ways. I remember that was something that would come up quite a lot around you. Like even when you would be in a room, everyone would be talking about your physique and because Mm. you're, you know, uh, Cur- very curvy in cur- some places, and not as curvy in other places. <laughs> uh, but your your body was something that a lot of people would talk about. I remember that from mm. back in the day. Uh, would talk about a lot and and oh god, yeah. It's when it's, that happens. It sort of reaffirms the little evil eating disorder bully inside of your brain.
3: Mm, I think in my experience, if if there have been deeper issues going on in my life eating disorder behavior was so much worse.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It would like exacerbate it by 10, you know, For like you was a form of control. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I went in and out of, you know, starving myself periods of starving myself and then, you know, flipping back because your body just craves food so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's just a total mess. Like I think my worst years were actually before I was signed, fortunately. And I just, I'm just baffled that 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 was who I was because I knew at the time it wasn't me. Like eating disorders aren't anybody. It's nobody's identity. It's an illness. Mm -hmm. But at the time you're just like, you have a small voice inside you that's like, you know better than this. This is not who you are.
2: So how were you able to recover from the eating disorder at 25?
1: Hmm.
3: It started at... Recovering started at like 20, I think. And I used to buy these books. um, They're like really 80s, 90s style books, American ones. It was like overcoming um, overeating, which is basically coaching yourself to not be scared of food anymore. So, and it was all very much linked with really being in tune with what your hunger is. So say like, I don't know if this is triggering for people, but say like a food that I was scared of was peanut butter. (laughs) Right. Or like pasta then you were, you were told to eat that food until you're full. And like, when you're full, you stop. And so I started to essentially make unsafe foods safe. And lo and behold, yeah, I did gain weight. <laughs> like, like, more than is my natural. But I was having to do this kind of pendulum swing between having restricted for so many years and like existing on one meal a day to trying to uh, re-educate my body into wanting three meals a day. And I'm not, I'm not definitely not perfect now. Like I still find it quite weird to eat three times a day. Right. But, um, but that was the start of me learning to like, or like beginning, beginning beginning to recover for sure.
2: Yeah. That was the same thing for me. For, for me, it was, I think I was about 28 and I was like, I'm going to finish full meals. I couldn't eat full meals. I would Mm. just, Pick at everything or eat just like the outside of a quiche, but never the inside of the quiche, which doesn't make <laughs> any sense. I looked fucking odd when I was out at dinner. uh I just, you know, or I would um, make excuses for why I wasn't hungry. I'd always claim to have had a, a yeah. surprise five pm dinner before going out to dinner at eight, even though I clearly knew I was going out for dinner at eight. So why would I have eaten at yeah. five? But that's what I would say Can I in ask order to you? excuse myself. Can
3: I ask you did you um did you feel that these symptoms got worse the more like you became a public figure or were they there before?
2: Oh no, mine had started at about eleven so oh, i'd wow. i'd I'd been in it for about eleven years. The problem for me with this industry was the fact that uh whenever whenever I was at my thinnest was when I would be complimented the most. It's when I would be given the Mm. most attention. It would be when I got the best opportunities. You know, the only time I was ever invited to shoot for British or American Vogue and all these things are unfortunately like gateways to further success and more autonomy in your career. The more success you have, the more power you have to eventually call your own shots. So it is something unfortunate. It's not just this vain, shallow thing you aspire to. If you want actual power and control away from men, you have to become this this uh, sort of powerhouse and you do that via these certain avenues or at least you did back then, thank God for social media because now people don't have to play those games. We don't need these publications. These publications are not specifically Vogue but yeah, fashion magazines, like the magazine industry in itself is kind of, you know, f- falling apart a little bit and that's because of the autonomy that we found on social media like everyone's social media is their own personalized magazine I think that's fantastic but we didn't have that when I came up there was no Instagram there was barely Twitter I was fucking terrible at Twitter I still am now (laughs) I don't know why I stay um but uh
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a really good point actually about um well just about the power that social media has given us in that respect because all we had really was like magazines to flip through. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, maybe there were some forums on the internet, but that was about, just about it. And when I think about your podcast, I'm like, if this had been around and if you had been around when I was 20, I genuinely think it would have changed my path.
2: Like genuinely. That's very sweet.
3: Yeah. I think it's so important. And, you know, anyone who's listening, who still struggles with this, it's just, There are so many of us who have been there, but I just can't express enough. It's such a waste of life and energy. And that was a thought that really plagued me when I used to be suffering. I'd be so annoyed at myself and so ashamed that I was wasting my energy on this. But it's, you know, it's not your fault. No one ever said that either. Like we are kind of products of our environment and that's what we've grown up in.
2: It's it's also not taken. Yeah. We're having to like
3: heal ourselves and recover from, which is, it's so hard. Um, And it's, you know, anyone who's making small steps should feel so proud because it's fucking
2: hard. It is fucking hard and it takes a really long time to get out of it. It took me 20 years to break out of it. And that's a really large portion of my life to spend (laughs) thinking about food or a lack thereof. And I guess the reason I just go on and on and on about it all of the time and I'm so intense about it is just because I'm so scared that any of my listeners will waste as much of their lives as I feel like I have. Exactly. Um, And also, you know, one of the things that I, I hope I've been a part of is making sure that and, you know, you're doing that today is making sure that people don't look at this as a frivolous thing, as a vain pursuit. You know, we're pushed and pushed and pushed towards wanting to control our bodies or wanting to make our bodies, you know, societally acceptable. And I definitely don't think all eating disorders are just aesthetically based. I think some of them are really yeah. just responses to trauma. Yeah. And and one of the few things in particular as a woman, you feel like you actually have some sort of control and autonomy over is what you put inside of your mouth. Mm. Um but we're pushed towards these, um, these acts against ourselves. And then we're criticised and belittled and diminished as a vein when we spend a lot of time focusing on food, focusing on exercise, obsessing over these things. It's not taken seriously as the second biggest, sorry, not the second. I mean, the second highest cause of death in any mental illness, only second to opioid
0: overdoses
2: you know so really it's considered the 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 single highest cause of death in any mental illness um and so i'm really happy for you that you managed to find your way out and i'm sorry that nine nine years is a really long time to struggle with that but it's incredible that you've managed to find your way out and and i look forward to you know being able to see you, be able to live your thirties and your forties and your fifties and sixties with totally. freedom, because a lot of people don't. Other than that, how has your like journey with your mental health been?
0: Um,
3: really rocky, Jamila. <laughs>
2: <laughs> really up and down. Um, you know, you know what? what? Sometimes... That's weird. Cause I've been fine. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> What a loser. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Whoops, I shouldn't clap. I know you clap. <laughs> I shouldn't clap for my earphones. Um, yeah, it has been very messy. I've had some great years where I um, have gotten to grips with things, but and I do feel as I get older, my mental health does become more stable. Mm-hmm. don't know if you have
2: experienced mm-hmm. that too. Definitely.
3: Um, but... Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think most of my life, I didn't really know that I had issues. I just felt like life was really hard and I was sad a lot. <laughs> I didn't know that that you could do something about that. It was just like, oh, this is just me. I was born like this.
2: So was this anxiety? Was this depression? Was it both?
3: Um, it was depression mainly up until, I don't know let's say, mid-20s, and then I think anxiety, like I still I still deal with that to a much lesser degree, but it's still a factor that I don't even know what the answer is. What um, do you feel
2: anxious about, do you mind me asking?
3: Um, it used to be social anxiety. Like, now that I know what it feels like to not have it, I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, you poor thing. Like, you were just so crippled with mm-hmm. anxiety all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um And again, didn't even term it in my head as like social anxiety. It was just maybe if I just drink really quickly, (laughs) just drink triple vodkas and sodas really quickly, it will subside. And it did kind of help, but that's not great for
2: your health. No, it's not. But also (laughs) then it kind of, you know, again, there's a similarity in not to lump you in with a bunch of other people. But, you know, when you were talking earlier about the kind of the anxiety you had around your career like I'm not doing enough I'm not big enough not enough people are noticing me etc yeah like that's so classic that you would also have this like constant underlying self-worth issue or depression issue anxiety like that's so often what artists like fundamentally if you fucking really look at it so most artists are Troubled in some way, they're processing. In particular, I think songwriters or writers. You know, uh, I remember being told once by a very prolific songwriter that you know he only learned how to write because he didn't really know how else to communicate, not only with himself but with others. Mm, It was the only way that that he knew how to externalize the way that he felt. Uh, And I think that's so true of all of my artist friends, and a lot of them are were processing and just happened to process in a way that sounded really great that other people people wanted to listen to. But I do think what I'm touching on is also a bigger issue that you and I spoke about over the phone, which is how dangerous this industry can be for a young vulnerable person, in particular one struggling with their mental health. Can we talk a little bit about that, about the impact on your mental health of being a musician?
3: Yeah, I think the behind the scenes stuff makes up the bulk of your career and your life. It's like 90%. Um, and when I think about what an artist's career entails, it is quite mad and very unhealthy. Even if you're someone who, you know, doesn't do drink or drugs or whatever, you're essentially, you know, traveling for, let's say six months of the year. So your main feeling of belonging is cut off, which is your community, your friends, your family, you know, Mm -hmm. those day-to-day um those day to day connections with people have gone and that's something i really realize now is is fundamental to feeling safe and connected number 2 <laughs> You are living on a bus with 14 other people,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> um, traveling from city to city. How did you find trying to piss on a tour bus? Because I, uh, <laughs> I have a terrible <laughs> time. It's a terrible time.
3: Oh, it's so horrible. Yeah. I mean, fans really don't know about this. It's Just gross. I now have my own toilet.
2: Oh, that's amazing! So you can actually sit on the actual seat because you see, I go on James's tour bus, right? And it's like it's like there's like fourteen to twenty men sharing this tour bus with us. So I'm not like no no disrespect to them, but I'm not fucking sitting down on the seat of that toilet seat like come on now let's just be real and so also they're driving at like 80 to 90 miles per hour sometimes when you're like driving across america there's a huge (laughs) distance to cover so i'm there just sort of like looking like i'm surfing I look I'm in a stance as if I'm surfing uh like I'm half squatting trying to pee like and a like make your
3: clothes not touch anything around yeah you but as then well. of course
2: like the bus will suddenly jolt and then I end up just pissing down my pajama leg at four <laughs> o'clock in the morning half asleep on a tour bus uh so it's a, it's a terrible time nobody asked for that story I'm so sorry no, nobody
3: um, asked for that story but we appreciate
2: it yeah because um, it, it's part of the reality yeah exactly that's <laughs> part of why um Marina has
0: had a no I'm joking. Yeah, right. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And celebrity cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new quick Caribbean escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Multa and Ecuador.
1: Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean...
2: Were you when you had a breakdown?
3: I was um I was 31. I think I was there are many terms for it, Jamila, as we know, that you burn
2: Alright, oh, fair. Burnout,
3: enough. breakthrough, breakdown illness, whatever you want to call it, but something just changed in me and I knew that I just couldn't continue. I needed um, I needed the space to potentially never come back again, <laughs> which was why I had also said, I don't know if I'm going to continue to be an artist.
2: Was there a moment of just, I can't do this anymore? Um,
3: I think as I'd launched through the third record, I kind of knew that something was going to happen or I just was feeling different. But actually the things that really made me stop were life circumstances. I had a really just awful period, um, on tour where two close family members died. They were, Shit. you know, they were older, but they, you know, they really meant a lot to me. And there was illness as well. And I remember just, this happened over like a four month period. I don't know if you've ever had a period like this in your life where things just It's like dominoes. Awful, catastrophic things keep happening, and yeah, it was about fifteen
2: years that went on. Yeah, yeah, no. Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) God. Yeah, I can relate. I can relate. Oh
3: my god! Um, (laughs) And you, if you're not able to process that or find the support or just self compassion to to like protect yourself, your body starts to really like tell you that you can't cope anymore. And I just started to have like severe panic attacks ev- pretty much every day before shows because I still had to go on stage whilst all of this family stuff was happening, which, you know, it's just really hard. It's it, and it, particularly not telling fans <laughs> either, like I'm going through a really hard time. Um, I just didn't want to ruin like the whatever like mirage I was concocting at the time and yeah. like, it, it just it fucked me up actually for a long time I'm still kind of dealing with health things because I burnt myself out properly
2: yeah and you love your fans so much like I can see the, I like the, I can see I how particular and caring <laughs> you are towards them and and that must have been really painful to have to step away from that that you'd built over the course of three albums it's also incredibly rare to have someone hit probably the peak of their career thus far where you actually finally have that top 10 record in America (laughs) huge success millions and millions and millions of listeners like everyone's attention in a very like autonomous organic way where Mm -hmm. you're not having to answer to the man like you are I'm not going to say you are the man, but like you you are controlling <laughs> your own machine for the first time. And it's it's incredibly inspiring that that would be when you choose to bow out and just protect yourself. Because very few people, like the way that we get fear-mongered, I can't imagine mm. that you were... Were you encouraged to take that break or were you discouraged no, from taking that break? No, no way. And I think... People were discouraging you, saying that, you know, like everything's going so well, there shouldn't be. Yeah, and
3: from a lovely... Place because mm, they were they were so um, so like happy about how things had gone. They just didn't really understand. But
2: even it's also it, a place of ignorance. Sorry, if I may just cut in. Yeah, it's a place of ignorance because as much as they're happy for you, it's because this entire industry has a value system of success first, happiness, health, peace later. Well, you know, just like rest that's when you're a
3: really dead. Good point exactly, and particularly with offers, you know, whether they're like creative or financial, I remember I got off to a really big tour with like an amazing artist. Um, I haven't done support tours in a very long time, but it was an amazing financial offer. And I just, I could not, I could not say yes. Like my body was physically saying like,
2: ick. <laughs> so what did you do in those, what did you do? Was it three years you took off?
3: Um, I took off. Two, two and a half years fully from like any public work.
2: What did you do during that time?
3: Um, Well, it sounds dreamy and like, wow, how self-protective and self-loving. It was really kind of messy. It was like very hard because I still had this guilt thing that people expected me to come back. Whether that was, you know, people I worked with at the time or label or fans, no one really understood. And so... I felt quite heavy at the time. I just felt like I was having an identity crisis where there was no way out. I was just like, there's no purpose in my life anymore. I don't know what I'm here for. Um, And I just don't get life. I just feel completely lost. Like my anchor is gone. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of followed me for about... I mean, throughout the hiatus, however, I did start to do things. I did, um, floristry courses. My favorite thing was a six month psychology course at university of London. I just did modules. (laughs) That's great. Um, And that seemed to like rejuvenate me actually going back to uni and doing something that was so wildly different, using my brain in a totally different way. And that's actually what started,
2: what, what helped me to start writing again which is so ironic. (laughs) I think it's so, I think it's so great. And I'm so happy that you're back, but that is so funny and ironic to me, but also so great because you were forced to finally divorce yourself from that mentality of success is everything. There is a certain barometer of success that I have to meet in order to feel worthy. And like I have accomplished anything.
3: Yeah, definitely. And also I think the biggest thing for me, I'm curious as to how you feel about this as well, was separating no, not separating, integrating the personal life me with my work life me, because they had become so separate that I felt like the only way to gain peace had become to be completely alone. Like that's the only time I ever felt natural. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't feel like that anymore. But I kind of had to go through those few years of really sorting myself out because I'd just become, you know, I'd lived as Marina on the Diamond since I was 22. Um, that's almost 10 years of thinking that your identity and worth are completely wrapped up in your artist
2: identity. Mm-hmm. And also wondering that like all these people love her, but would anyone actually love me?
3: Yeah. but And also just the tension of feeling like you had to um, appear or behave a certain way. Like sometimes, you know, we don't feel like smiling or taking a picture and i'd be okay with meeting a fan now and being like that but at the time it was just so different i just didn't feel like i could possibly be my authentic self
2: yeah i am um, yeah well, how I do mean, you we're feel also about we're also anymore? like thoroughly discouraged from doing that in every walk of life like whatever job you work at you're always told smile um. So no, I agree completely. When I was on T four, like I was so, I was so detached from myself that I used to speak in a slightly different voice. I go back and I watch like, wow. old videos of me talking on T four, and I speak a bit more like Alan <laughs> I mean, Partridge. I used to actually, sort of trying to speak a bit more like Rick Edwards or the Chung Uh And I go back and I'm like, why am I doing that with my mouth? That's so embarrassing. <laughs> I, I remember trying to make a show reel for like you know when America like wanted to start. Singing. Yeah. Like I came to America, ran out. Of Money they wanted to send me to auditions, and I was like, okay, I'll scrap together my old work in England, but I couldn't use any of it because I'm talking in the completely different So mortifying. I probably interviewed you in that voice. That's uh, oh, so embarrassing. I can't remember that Oh uh, thank God.
3: Also, I just think you know, when I listen to your podcast, by the way, everyone listening at home, I love this podcast. That's so sweet. <laughs> I'm I'm Lil Thangirl. Um I I can hear, you know, your authentic self and that just makes other people, that brings that out in other people, you know, just existing in this way is just so, so much more um, impactful than you, you may know.
2: Yeah. And I don't think it's just people in our jobs who feel this way. I think there are so many in particular women, but people of all different genders who put on this happy face, you know, who, who pretend to be okay, who pretend to be able to cope. And therefore that's like, that's, I've talked before about the fact that I think that's what caused part of my depression And, and maybe other people listening to this will be able to relate, but... When you are putting on a happy front, you are lying not only to other people, but you're being unintegral to yourself. Yeah. So you're playing this character, and that creates this distance between who you actually are and who you're pretending to be. And within that distance, for me, is where the numbness grew.
3: Because I was like, there's such emptiness in this like
2: moat between me and the person I was pretending to be. And so my depression was numb. I was just numb. Everything seemed pointless.
3: Yeah. I so relate to that. And I really believe that (laughs) explanation. It really helps actually visualizing that.
2: Speaking about, you know, kind of being integral and honest with yourself. Another conversation you and I had in private was about kids Mmm, that we're going to have together. No, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're getting married and we're having babies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, you and I both have uh, quote-unquote traditional views around whether or not we want children. Where are you at? Yeah,
3: I'd love to talk about this. Partly why I want to talk about it is because I'm, I'm offensive. I don't quite know what I feel yet. I'm ambivalent about it. And I think though we still don't have enough conversations from women who just don't want kids, but are feeling pressured to, um, for whatever reason, we also don't have enough conversations or we don't have enough expression from women who actually still don't know. And Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's hard when you love your job (laughs) because you, there's less of a feeling of wanting to fill a space or avoid void or, or maybe just wanting to create something. Um, and it's something that I've really been thinking about the past three or four years because of my age, you know, being in my thirties, that's when most women feel the most pressure if they haven't yet had kids. Um, and I would hope that by talking about this, we can give confidence to women either same age older younger than us that it's okay to not want kids um it's also okay to not know but I think the most important thing is giving yourself the respect and like space to really find out how you feel because it's the biggest decision of your life and yeah and it's personality based as well I believe you know some people are going to enjoy the experience more than others there's Mm -hmm. it's also quite risky because none of us know how we're going to respond um but yeah when I spoke to you about it I was like pleased to have someone else to talk to about it because it's also quite an isolating experience
2: 100% I mean and everyone pressures me a lot I talk about it a fair bit on this podcast um I mean I do I talk about it yeah sorry I talk about it a fair fair amount and I uh I am always so excited to talk to someone about their genuine experience of parenthood, Mm, uh, regardless of, you know, what kind of parent they are. And I'm always trying to get the, the dirt from parents do, of like what's the difficult shit don't tell me it's the best thing you'll ever do don't tell me that you you know that you've you've loved in a way that you never knew you could love I was like tell me the <laughs> tell me the shit that's gonna mean that I you know that that reaffirms this terror that I have because I mm. you know I don't feel as though like, I feel like I'm I'm forced like force-fed baby propaganda all the time and the older I get the more people are just like when it's not if it's when are you going to have a baby Yeah. i've you know still once, still i remember this. It's so once weird. Uh, someone uh someone coming up to me and james a uh, well-known artist who i'm not going to name mm-hmm. but, uh, fuck this guy uh <laughs> he tried to make me on like a, a, like a christmas dinner pinky promised that i would never get an abortion that if i if james and i ever had a baby he was like you must make a baby together And uh, Pinky promised me now that you won't get an abortion. And I was refusing to do it. (laughs) But he also then wouldn't leave us alone uh, unless I was going to do it. And James leaned in and was like, "Um, just so you know, that a Pinky promise isn't actually legally binding. So if you do it, (laughs) I'm not going to hold you to this
0: but yeah, I just refused because I
2: was so angered. That's uh, I was so angered. And he was like, your life won't change at all. And like, this is like one of the most successful musicians in the world. So it's like, his life didn't change at all because his wife is at home looking after yeah. the kids while he's in the studio all the time. Yeah. And so the the misogyny in that it's like, no, James's life won't change at all is what he was really thinking. Right. Of course my life would change. And of course, you're like, regardless of what, whether you're the mother or the father or however you wish to identify, like, your life changes. If you're a good parent, in some way <laughs> your life changes. And yeah. uh, the, I... the the seamlessness with which people like to speak about like the the way in which they speak about parenthood as if it is the seamless thing. Feels very callous to me because I've been on the receiving end of bad parenting. I've watched mm. a lot of bad parenting. I have friends who are the result of very bad parenting. It isn't this thing where of course, you're not, you don't have to do it by any kind of manual and you should feel free to do, you know, to parent the way that you feel instinctively is best. But also we have to take it really fucking seriously and we have to do it with as little resentment as is possible. It has to be something you really desperately want to embark on. Absolutely. In my opinion. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Who the fuck am I? Don't have children. Don't listen to me. But... uh what I'm trying to say is that... Yeah, we're like two, two, two yeah. women without children, like... Just like telling people how to pair it. But the point is, is that, is that if you're going to do it well, it has to be something that you really care about. It has to be very constantly intentional. It has well, to be intentional f- fucking forever because you can always do so much damage. You know,
3: it, okay, not all choices are intentional when it comes to conception, but... Yeah. I think, you know, knowing that you, that you commit to whatever parenthood is going to bring your way is a, is a huge thing. And I think it's amazing when people can make that decision with their whole heart. And I think if you can't, then maybe, maybe it's a no for now, you know, there's that Mm -hmm. quote, it's like, um, indecision is a decision.
2: Yeah. I love that. That's great.
3: And so, I mean, for myself, you know, I like I like being fluid and giving myself the space to find out if I don't yet know. And in a way that kind of excites me. It's like, I've never been in this position in my life where I can actually just see how things go and follow, you know, follow my own, um, my own path and see where that leads, see where that should lead for me. Cause I am a little bit of a, I don't know. Not a like destiny person. <laughs> However, I do think that if you make the right decisions, the right things will come. And if kids are meant to be part of my life, then that's what's going to happen. If, and if they're not, it's also totally for the right reason.
2: I agree. I'm, I'm, gonna put, I'm putting my girls on ice. Yeah. I'm 35 now and Have unfortunately you for women, we don't know, not yet. I'm going to do it and everyone's going to hear about it. And they're going to be some very pissy intros <laughs> to this podcast when I'm doing it. Cause I've heard it's an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put my girls on ice. Um, and I'm really frustrated for people with ovaries and uteruses that, that we are on a clock. Mm. uh of any kind with one of the biggest decisions of all time um but i you know i am on a clock and i'm so far from a yes that i'm but i'm also not a hundred million percent a no i'm a 95 percent no to children because i don't want to give up my freedom i don't want to wake up early i don't want to meet their 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 friends parents
3: it when you said this on the pre-card. I was like, yeah. Jamila doesn't want kids because she hates other
2: parents. I just don't want to, Like, I'm socially anxious. I don't want to meet their parents. Uh, I don't want to have to hang out and tolerate with them. What if I don't like their friends? They have to be in my fucking house. As a, there's a lot, what if I don't like their teachers? I don't want to do fucking teachers. Like, I'm a selfish person. I'm a selfish That's person. Amazing. And that comes from having been a selfless person for way mm. too long, which led to a lot of my mental health problems. So I feel like I'm only just finally not living my life, even though I'm in a relationship with another person, poor sod, not living my life for him either. (laughs) I, uh, I'm living my life just for me right now. And everyone can either come along for the ride or they're going to have to like just fuck off and that's Mm. where I'm at and it's taken me my whole life to get here and so now that I finally feel like my life isn't for a man or a woman or a manager or an agent or a publicist or the public or a family member or 19 family members all at the same time I finally feel like Mm -hmm. my life is actually mine and so the idea of giving that up and sacrificing quite a lot of that freedom for a significant amount of time Mm. it's just going to get in the way of this freedom that I finally found and for some people having a child is their own form of freedom and I get that and I love that and your freedom then isn't being taken away you're being able to like fully realize your path and I think that motherhood for some of my friends is just the most amazing thing that's happened to some of them and it's fucking terrible for some of the other ones who I hope aren't listening to this but (laughs) (laughs) they're fucking miserable and there's nothing they can do now. And that yeah. scares me and that makes me feel like that's the road that I might be on. And if I can avoid it and take some control over it, great. And also if I change my mind, there are so many little babies that need a home in this world. I mean, world. That's,
3: that's what I think about too. If you if you change your mind and you really, really want kids, adoption is an amazing
2: life-changing thing that you thing. can do yeah exactly and also you know if I can love a fucking other species as much as I love my dog mm. that's another thing Marina like pushed me further over the edge choked on a chicken bone oh the other my day, god choked oh my- on a chicken bone <laughs> on Sunday and almost died in my arms and oh I had to yank god. a chicken thigh bone like out of his throat as he was like foaming at the mouth and like having a seizure this tiny puppy in my arms And when I finally managed to get it out and I realised he could breathe again, like literally dying in my arms, I had the panic attack of my life. I've never had a panic attack ever like that. And I've been through some real shit before, but it was the worst I've ever felt having watched him in that vulnerable situation. I think after that, I realised I was like, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to be responsible (laughs) for another life. Like I can't. It takes the bravest human beings on earth to go through this sort of like vulnerable death trap. <laughs> like, yeah. If this is what, how close I am attached, I am to a dog that this is the physical reaction I have to its safety. I, yeah. I can't imagine. Can't yeah. Imagine I mean, this,
3: this is the thing in this conversation and in, in thinking about it, I often also just marvel at parents and the yeah. people who have actively chosen to, to be a guide or a guardian, you know, for children. Um, it's magical. my full admiration. But I think what you just said about being your age now and where you're at in your life, I really feel that. And I do wonder if listeners also feel the same if there are people out there. I don't know if it's a, like 35 years old thing or if it's just the way that our culture is now or not having, you know, as like many issues <laughs> as we used to in our 20s. But I just feel so much more free and confident than I've ever felt and I kind of don't want that to end I want I same. feel like I missed out on my 20s because of what I chose to do in my career and I wonder if you also like
2: feel yeah, I feel bad, the same way I feel like I'm in an arrested development I feel like now I'm actually 25 <laughs> and I'm finally getting a chance at 25 or 19 or whatever and I feel like uh, I'm yeah. trying to do what I want to do for me and I agree with you I think parenting is an extraordinary task when it's done with love patience kindness and and as little resentment as one can muster yeah. <laughs> considering how difficult it is um but I'm just and it's because I marvel at it so much that I just don't think I can actually do it and I really am fucking sick of being told you're gonna regret it because I'm like there are millions of children who need a home in this world yeah who are on the waiting list for up to five years who can't find a home and so I um and so I really massively want to keep that door open and and not ever be pressured into making a life altering decision.
3: A- absolutely not. Like that just isn't it anymore. Making decisions for yourself that will impact your entire life just because you want to socially fit in. Like, no.
2: Yeah. Come on. And like, how do you know you will regret it? I would like to get into my 40s, hopefully. And find out for myself. I was like, oh, okay, you know what? I'm starting to regret it. Great. I'll do something about that. Maybe it'll yeah. be IVF or maybe it will be adoption, whatever that is. But I would like to find out for myself and stop being fear-mongered by people who aren't going to be there at three yeah. o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> also- <laughs> when my nipple feels like it's going to fall off. You know what I mean? It's like, where are you going to be? You know, when I'm when I'm avoiding all these regrets you fear-mongered me about. I think I'd just like to find out for my fucking self.
3: Yeah. And also... I think it's just important to add to the conversation that there is sacrifice in both decisions, like whether you have Mm kids or not, there is a sense of loss for both, and that's okay. Because I think one of the fears of, um, you know, the feeling of being pressured to say, yes, okay, I am going to take this route is is like oh what if I regret it or you know what if I'm gonna feel sad and lonely in my 40s or 50s because my or friends I'm will be 80? busy with their
2: children yeah
3: yeah and you know what there may be that aspect but there are lots of new friends as well available <laughs> mm-hmm. um and also new paths to lead I think we are we're really the second generation who are doing this but we're the first in terms of it now kind of being a bit more acceptable but we still need to like push this conversation forward regardless of what you and I end up choosing to do yeah
2: I was also saying that the idea the argument of (laughs) the argument of having a kid because you want someone to take care of you when you're old I'm always like
3: guarantee no
2: no but also like (laughs) my child is probably not going to be a trained nurse you know or doctor (laughs) like if they've got my attention span like I don't want them inserting a catheter I'm older I would like a trained professional to look after me I don't want yeah you know I don't want to be I don't want my children to look after me and like you know deal deal with my my health or whatever I I, you know I want I want someone who knows what they're fucking doing I'd have to give birth to two doctors if I want them (laughs) to be looking after me so that's not a reason to do it either I don't want them anywhere near me Oh my god! If they're think- anything like me, I don't want them anywhere near me when I'm old and fragile. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I I love how honest and open you are. I love how vulnerable you are. I love how constantly open to change you are. I love how many times you've changed your public identity. Mm. I love the way that you have always <laughs> taken the rules as a light suggestion as Much as is possible for a young woman in our generation, thank you. Um, but I uh, and I've loved chatting to you today. Um, me too, you know, maybe we'll just be two 60 year olds going on freaking holiday <laughs> to Greece together. I, you that's know, that's
3: when our friendships finally that'll be the, start.
2: Friend, that, be the new friend, those will be the new friends you make when you decide not to have children. Uh, just <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> to. I bet two childless women living their best fucking lives it'll be great um, hopefully. but yeah and we'll see we'll see maybe in a year's time you and i will be up the duff and uh doing another podcast Dude, episode about anything how we've updated. yeah with our tails between our legs <laughs> yeah telling other people it's the best thing you'll ever do it's a love you've never known um i promise to never put pressure on anyone else if i do yeah. decide to make that choice anyway same here same here before you go uh as you've listened to this podcast before, yes. uh, will you tell me mm-hmm. Marina Diamandis, mm-hmm. what do you
3: weigh? Oh my God, Ramira. Um, I weigh my friendships. Mm-hmm. I weigh my songs. I weigh some fabulous outfits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I weigh my ability to create a visual world and... And I weigh my independence.
2: Mm-hmm. And you also weigh the most intense and wonderful loving fan base. <laughs> oh, <no>. oh.
3: <laughs> that too. Um, that too.
2: Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about so many different things. Thank um, you. Love you loads. And I promise yeah. to actually this time, now that we live <laughs> near each other again, yeah. I'm not going to let you go this time.
3: Oh, we we are going to get this friendship
2: up and fucking... running running yeah
3: (laughs) okay i'll see you soon whenever you're back and thank you so much for having me on
2: oh it was such a pleasure a pleasure and an honor thank you so much bye bye Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at I weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram. Anyway, and now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. I weigh the fact that I'm in the class of 2020, despite the pandemic, and the self-awareness I've gained from it. I weigh my ability to speak up for what I believe in, and that I can lend an ear to even those who I don't instantly agree with. But above it all, I weigh my friendships that have taught me patience and unconditional love. Love you and all that you do, Jamila. Sincerely, Mia.